Hello, I'm Claire Catford. It's Friday the 19th of February and this is Guardian Daily. Today, the cost of cleaning up the environmental damage done by the world's biggest companies is revealed. $2.2 trillion worldwide. For some companies, there will actually be opportunities here. You know, if you're a company that's ahead of the field in minimising the amount of water you use to produce your food, for example, then you may actually be able to do better than your competitors. The Foreign Office calls in the Israeli ambassador. Has the fake passports row caused serious damage to diplomatic relations? I think that this is a... A serious crisis. The Foreign Office, what Miliband says what he says in public and private diplomats at the Foreign Office are pretty much hopping mad. And why Winter Olympic jokes leave the Canadian organisers cold. There is a kind of conspiracy theory going around that uh, the British press is attacking the Vancouver Games because we they'll make London look good in two years' time. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. The cost of damage to the environment caused by the world's biggest companies would wipe out more than one-third of their profits if they were made to pay for it, according to an unpublished United Nations report. The study, due in May this year, estimates that worldwide damage is worth $2.2 trillion. Our environment correspondent, Juliet Jowett, is here. Juliet, how have the UN arrived at this figure? The UN asked a company based in London called TrueCost, um, who are considered sort of probably world leaders in the field of valuing environmental things, to do this. They looked at the 3,000 biggest public companies, so that's listed companies, and it, around the world, and they looked at published figures for pollution, fuel burnt by these companies, water they used, all sorts of other things. And then they used uh, sometimes commonly accepted figures to put a cost on that damage, or they used a panel of experts uh, from across Europe and North America to advise them on how to put a price on these things. And which companies specifically are the worst culprits? I think for the moment we're focusing on sectors. Uh, I think it's pretty accurate to speculate that uh, energy power companies and energy generators and also um, industries that use a lot of power, like aluminium and steel, will figure highly under the section for global warming emissions. Uh, transport would be a local air pollution uh, sector, which uh, had local air pollution as a, as a major issue. And then the heavy water users would be food and drink companies and also clothing companies. How will this study, do you think, be used to impact upon businesses? I mean, could companies be charged or fined for their use of environmental resources? There is growing momentum to do exactly this. To It's not just fines, it's uh, taxes, it's fines if people exceed certain limits, possibly tougher limits. There could be regulations which simply prohibit companies from doing things. Uh, trading schemes like carbon trading. But all these things would impose some kind of cost or limitation on businesses. And this is not just of interest to the people running them um, who are, you know, looking at a healthy profit line and some salaries and bonuses, but also their customers, because prices might go up or might not, they may find more efficient ways of doing things. And also investors, which uh, don't forget, include many of our pension funds. And you mentioned before that Yes, there could be some real changes. Businesses may have to pay back some money or pay some of their profit towards environmental concerns. But putting the money where their mouths are, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Uh, Yes, well, and one of the problems for any system when you're designing it is that it can be quite costly to run it simply. um, And that's obviously something they'll be seeking to minimise. Don't forget that most companies obey the rules most of the time, so or at least uh, as, as little as they can. 
the the other thing to remember is that for some companies there will actually be opportunities here you know if you're a company that's ahead of the field in minimizing the amount of water you use to produce your food for example then you may actually be able to do better than your competitors when these rules and regulations come in and of course some companies will be working specifically on solutions to these problems and they again might benefit so it's it's not all about doom and gloom that was Juliet Jowett and there's more on this story at environmentguardian.co.uk It was an invitation and not a summons, according to the Israeli ambassador to Britain, after he was called in to the Foreign Office to discuss the cloning of six British passports used in the murder of a Hamas leader in Dubai. Dubai police say they're virtually certain that Israel's secret service, the Mossad, was behind the assassination. But Britain has stopped short of accusing Israel of involvement. Ian Black is The Guardian's Middle East editor and joins me now. Ian, Britain has known about this case for a few weeks. Why has it waited till now to launch the investigation? It's hard to say. I mean, I think that, you know, in any event, whenever it came out, it was going to be very embarrassing. It's a real ticking time bomb to discover that yet again, the uh, Israelis have been using, illicitly using British passports, though this is a a slight variation from what happened before. I guess it's possible that the you know the government wanted to think about its reaction and probably not to preempt any announcement made by the authorities in Dubai, who of course are in charge of the of the criminal investigation. They might have known about things uh, through diplomatic channels and then just waited for um, for a formal announcement from uh, from the UAE. I guess that's probably what happened. The Israelis haven't been forthcoming with additional information. Do we know any more? Uh, Well, we don't know any more from them. The Israeli government is keeping its mouth collectively shut on the subject, as uh, we've seen. They've uh, they've said that there is no proof of Israeli involvement. What's very striking is that really everybody else, uh, the whole of the rest of the world, and plenty of commentators in Israel, of course, appear to have no doubt whatsoever that the Israelis were behind this. I think the Dubai police chief talked about 99% certainty. And I think that, uh, that figure pretty much represents the the view around the world of this episode. What the Israelis say is that they're sticking by their policy. They call it a traditional policy of ambiguity, of neither confirming nor denying uh, their involvement in uh, in these sort of operations. It's the same argument they use, incidentally, about their nuclear capabilities. It is widely believed, correctly, around the world that Israel has a significant nuclear arsenal. But Israel has, has a policy of never confirming that. So it's doing the same sort of thing in this case. However transparent that may be, it's its line and it's sticking to it. But clearly it has very little credibility. The Israeli ambassador here says he was invited into the Foreign Office and not summoned. And as you will know, David Miliband described the alleged passport cloning as an outrage. Are we in the middle of a severe diplomatic crisis, do you think? I think that this is a a serious crisis. The Foreign Office, Miliband says what he says in public, in private, diplomats at the Foreign Office are pretty much hopping mad. They're talking about this uh, as, as, as a very, very serious breach of protocol in relations between two friendly countries. Uh, they're hinting at unspecified but dire consequences. Uh, they're also pointing to the fact that as well as British passports, the, the alleged hit squad were using French and German ones. I mean, that runs the gamut of the three biggest and most powerful countries in the European Union, almost as if it were a deliberate slap in the face. So I think it is a serious crisis. 
relations were in not great shape before this because of differences over the Middle East peace process. But things have worsened in the last year with the government of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. It's the most right-wing government Israel has ever had. The peace process is um, effectively moribund. Not not all Israel's fault, but uh, they take a big share of the responsibility, particularly in refusing, as the international community has demanded, that they freeze settlement activity in the occupied territories. There have been some suggestions that Israel's been unhappy with Dubai's links to Hamas for some time. What substance might there be in this? Well, I think, you know, Dubai is, it's in a way, it's, it's kind of unfair to pick on Dubai. It's a, it's a very, for all its tremendous financial troubles, that of course, that we, we saw spectacularly a few months ago, it's a, it's a relatively open place. It's the kind of country, it's a very small emirate, part of the United Arab Emirates, where you can come and go freely, uh, travel is good, access and communications are good, and it's a useful place for people to do business, whether that's you know, possibly access to um, Iran just across the Gulf or generally into the, into the Arab world. It's not a closed society like some uh, Arab states, so it's a place that people gravitate to to, uh, to do whatever business they're doing, legal or illegal, and I guess that's why it's... Uh, come into focus like this, whether the Dubai authorities know everything about everybody who comes and goes to their little emirate, of course, is, is open to question. Uh, we're, we're seeing them now in the midst of a tremendous storm over this, uh, over this incident. Maybe, maybe one of the things the Israelis are trying to achieve is to have the authorities in Dubai be a bit more choosy about who they uh, allow in to do what. And what about Mossad's reputation because of all of this? One Israeli newspaper described what happened as a tactical success but a strategic failure. I think that's a pretty accurate description. I mean, you know, um, however you look at this, they assuming that they, uh, what they wanted to do was to kill the Hamas man, they did that. They all got away. They didn't manage to uh, eliminate their traces. And I think that's where the thing falls down, because the traces lead to, it seems to me, to, well, the tremendous embarrassment and controversy that we've seen. And I think probably quite serious damage to Israel's international standing at a time when it's in pretty ropey shape anyway. Um, so, yes, tactically very successful. But in the bigger picture, you have to wonder whether um, whether um, all the fuss will have been worth it to to get rid of one Hamas operative who will in all likelihood be fairly uh, rapidly replaced by uh, by another figure. Ian Black, Guardian Middle East editor. And there's lots more on this story on our website at guardian.co.uk forward slash Israel. They don't appear to be attending the same Olympic Games as everyone else. The words of angry Winter Olympic official John Furlong. He was referring to criticism in the British press about the Games. The death of Luge contestant Georgian Kumaritashvili sent shockwaves around the world. Weather problems meant that snow didn't fall in the right place and some spectators have complained that they can't see the Olympic flame. The Guardian's Lawrence Donegan is in Vancouver. Oh, I don't think the Canadian people have lost a sense of humour. I mean, I've, on my Twitter feed, I've been getting all sorts of abuse, some of it funny and some of it not so funny. I mean, and that's fine. That's all part of the thing. It's been a British journalist over here. But um, the games, telling the people who are running the games, I mean, it's not a question of losing their sense of humour. They just don't appear to, you know, rather than addressing the problems that are here, which are, you know, you know, not significant. You know, there's a lot of them, you know, piddling problems, you know, the flame cauldron's been hidden behind an ugly wire mesh fence that looks like a building site. 
you know, rather than addressing these, these problems, they're attacking the messenger. But of course, it's very convenient for them to attack. Uh, well, certainly, I mean, the Canadian press has been doing a great job of reporting the problems, but they obviously the, the, the IOC and the, the VANOP game, the games organisers can't, can't really attack the Canadian press. So they're attacking the British press. And I mean, that's all, you know, I mean, that's fine. But um, I mean, it should be seen for what it is, which essentially is a, is a media tactic rather than, uh, than actually addressing the problems that are not dragging the games down, but, you know, just slightly taking the edge off the games. You mentioned the fence that no one can see beyond. Also, oh. the malfunctioning ice structures in the opening ceremony. Of course, the problem, too, of there not being enough snow. Uh, yeah, again, that's, you know, I mean, nobody, I mean, this isn't China. They can't control the weather as they did in Beijing in 2008. However, again, there is a slight issue uh, of the choice of site for the, uh, for the snowboarding events. They're being held at the Cypress Mountain Complex, uh, which is quite close to the sea, and there's, you know, fairly uh, the altitude isn't particularly high, and the temperatures are normally quite high. They took a they took a gamble, as they say, and, and the gamble hasn't paid off. The consequence being that 28,000 people have had their tickets cancelled and refunded, including one I got from a British reader yesterday uh, that travelled all the way just to see the snowboarding events, spent two or three thousand pounds, and lo and behold. Uh, cancelled at the last minute. I mean, it's, it's a shame for people like that. As you say, there's been lots of online discussion. One of them caught my eye. Pee off Brits or piss off Brits, if we're allowed to say that. A furious email typical of the Guardian's Vancouver Olympics mailbag and stop producing so many ugly women. Well, it will be our turn in two years' time, won't it? Uh, well, absolutely. And I, 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 the people who are criticising, I don't think they kind of understand the, the kind of function. And the press here in Canada has been doing it, you know, is to... Yeah, obviously to celebrate the games, uh, celebrate the successes of home athletes, but also to, you know, turn a spotlight on the way the games are being organised and what is actually going on. I mean, the idea, I mean, there is a the kind of conspiracy theory going around that uh, the British press is attacking the Vancouver Games because we they'll make London look good in two years' time. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm sure if uh, when the games come around in London, if there's problems, they will be reported. I'm absolutely sure about that. So, Lawrence Dunnigan in Vancouver, it's nothing to do with you. You're just doing your job and doing it as best you can. Oh, you would expect me to say that, wouldn't you? But, I mean, it, it's <laughs> true, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, it is true. But, that, I mean, there's obviously there's also great sport going on. Uh, Sean White, the American uh, snowboarder, oh, it was sensational in the half pipe. I, I can't even, dis- well, I can't even name the moves he was pulling off, far less describe them. But it was brilliant. Even yesterday was a, probably the best day for sport at the Games. Uh, Sean White won in the halfpipe and uh, Lindsay Vaughan won the women's downhill. Two Americans who were expected to be the face of the Games. And, uh, and so far, I mean, that's proved to be the case. That's Lawrence Donegan loving every minute at the Winter Olympics in Vancouver. Finally, The Guardian's sister paper, The Observer, is relaunched on Sunday and in the New Look Arts pages you'll be able to find an exclusive interview with the Canadian singer-songwriter Rufus Wainwright. And while he was here, he recorded an exclusive performance of the track Zebulon from his latest album, All Days and Nights. All I need arise. You know it was always too
Rufus Wainwright with Zebulon, and there's more from him in Sunday's New Look Observer. That's it from us. Phil Maynard was the producer today. My name's Claire Catford. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>